0: Part of my goal this morning is to prepare us for Easter. You know, a lot of times in our culture, we have a kind of an anemic sort of celebration of Easter. We go, we go out of our way for Christmas, man. We got Christmas cantatas and programs, school, church. We got trees. We got gifts. We, put, we get up on the roof and put lights on. I don't do this, but a lot of you put lights on the roof and, and you risk your lives to celebrate Christmas and Christmas. Uh, Uh, You know, we go into traffic to buy presents, you know, at the mall or get on Amazon. We do a lot of stuff for Christmas, but sometimes for Easter, we realize, oh, man, Easter's next week. We got to buy something for the kids to wear. You know, it's like we, we have this sort of anemic sort of celebration of Easter. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the center of our faith. I mean, if Jesus didn't get up out of the grave, Christmas doesn't mean anything. If Easter didn't happen, Christmas was just the birth of another guy. Now, and a lot of churches that are more liturgical in the kind of their worship experience, they've been preparing themselves for the celebration of Resurrection Sunday morning for 40 days now. But we're a less sort of liturgical sort of church, but there's still things that we can do to make our celebration of Easter Sunday morning more robust. Okay, so I'm going to give you a few of them, and then we're going to dive into the text this morning. Here's just some ideas. Number one, you could read the Passion Narratives. About a third of the Gospels are the last week of Jesus' life. Okay, so you've got plenty of material. So pick a Gospel, like, say, Matthew. And this week, spend time reading from Palm Sunday all the way through to the Resurrection. And don't just read about it, but meditate on it. Read a little bit every day, and you might say, well, I don't know how to meditate. Yes, you do know how to meditate. Do you know how to worry? Raise your hand if you know how to worry. Just tell the truth right now in Jesus' name. Okay, but the rest of you are lying. Everybody here knows how to worry. Well, worry is just meditating on the wrong stuff. If you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. So so take some time this week and read the Passion and meditate. Think about it. You could read good books on the cross, And the resurrection, you could watch or listen to good teaching on the cross and the resurrection. I'm going to teach on the cross in just a a moment, and hopefully it'll be good, but I make no promises. Uh, Number four, we're going to set a reminder. I I think this is a a spiritual discipline I've done for a while now, and I would invite you into it. Set a reminder for 3 p.m. on Good Friday, which was the ninth hour when Jesus gave up his spirit, Set a reminder on your calendar. In fact, you could even do that, right? This would be the one, one of the few times I invite you to take out your phone at church while I'm preaching, okay? And and, take, and and just you could just put in an appointment or a reminder right now on your phone so that at 3 p.m. right on Good Friday when Jesus gave up his spirit and he said, it is finished. That you stop, maybe close your eyes, if you're driving, don't do this, you know, I like pull over first, but... You close your eyes, you stop, and you just think about the cross. And you think about the fact that it was your sin that put him there. Not somebody else's. Make it intensely personal. It's a great spiritual discipline to do. Uh, I would also say, here's another thing you could do. Plan a party. I mean, it's Easter. Jesus got up out of the grave. Man, he deserves to have a celebration for that. I mean, let's have good food and maybe put some music on at your house. Have some fresh cut flowers, you know, laugh, you know. Dare I even say it? Dance. I mean, like, this, it's, Easter should be a celebration. That's right. A party. And then, and then here's what you do. You come to church next Sunday morning on Resurrection Sunday ready to celebrate. Because he is risen. He didn't stay on the cross. He rose from the dead. So my goals today are to prepare us for Easter by lifting high the cross and convincing you that the cross changes everything. Now, when I say everything, I mean everything. And to kind of get at that, let me ask this question. What happened at the cross? I want you to think about that for a second. When we talk about the cross, we talk about it changing everything. What actually happened at the cross? Why do we call the cross good news? Because it seemed like bad news at that first Good Friday. I mean, the disciples certainly thought it was bad news. Good Friday didn't look very good to them. It looked kind of. Bad. In fact, it seemed like the end of all of their hopes, all of their dreams. It seemed like the end. One of the things that Good Friday teaches us, among other things, is this: that sometimes what seems like the end is only a new beginning. So what happened on the cross? Well, let's look at that, and I'll show you a picture up here, a figure of it. Here's the three things that, that we're going to talk about today that happened at the cross. The first is triumph. It's conquest. The cross was a defeat of Satan, and it was the conquest of evil, okay? Not only was it that, it was, can we go back to that one, uh, Fred? It, it's also the redemption of sinners, and it was the revelation of who God is. So let's look at them one by one. First, the triumph conquest. The, the cross was the defeat of sin, death, and the devil. For And, and he, here's what you need to know. For the first 1,000 years of church history, this was the dominant model. For the first 1,000 years of church history, when people said, what happened at the cross? They said, triumph! Jesus conquered! That was the first... They didn't talk about substitution. They said it was triumph. It was, it was victory. In fact, the... Biblical writers had this focus throughout. First John, verse chapter three, verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work, right? And, and, and in that text, if you look up the context, the devil's work there is our sin, our personal, individual sin. And the reason Jesus came was to destroy that work. Conquest, victory. Colossians 2 verse 15, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. How? By the cross. And and throughout history, people have read that in two different ways. One is the powers and authorities is the systemic, sort of the social institutionalized sin. So in 1 John 3, it was my personal sin. This is like institutional sin. Or the other way people have read that, the powers and authorities refer to actual spiritual beings. Either way, he overcame. He triumphed. But that's not all. There's more. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, there's the cross again, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And just in case you're wondering, he says, that is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Guys, this is good news. At the cross, Jesus defeated sin. My personal sin, my individual sin, but not just that. Our social, collective, institutionalized, systemic sin. But that's not it. He defeated Satan and he defeated death itself. Oh man, we need to remember this. Jesus is the victor. Man, if Good Friday and Easter do not tell you anything else, it's Jesus is the victor. Remember that when you walk outside today and you see the news and it looks like evil is winning. Because all the evidence when you walk out of here is going to look like he's not the victor. But the truth is, he already won. Remember that when you have a besetting addiction. And it feels like the addiction has more power than Jesus. The addiction doesn't have more power than Jesus. Remember that when the icy fingers of death touch your family, or the fear of death tries to intimidate you and control you. Remember this Jesus conquered the grave. So death is lost. Listen, we we have hope. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus defeated sin, Satan, and death. But that's not all. The cross is also the redemption of sinners. Do you know the cross shows us who we are apart from redemption? You know, apart from redemption, we're sinners. In fact, you know what the cross teaches us? That so bad do we want to be God that we would kill God if we could. Because that's what we did. The word of God, the logos, the eternal word the son of God took on human flesh. He came among the, the very creation that he made. And what did we do to him? We crucified him. But that's not the end. It's not just that we're sin; it's the redemption of sinners. The cross shows us that we're redeemed. Mark 10 verse 45 says this, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is, right? A ransom is a price that is paid to redeem somebody from bondage or captivity. You, you know, you've seen it in movies where somebody captures somebody, and they say, we're not giving it back until you give us a million dollars, or you've read about this, you know what it's like. That's what Jesus did for us. He, redeemed, he bought us back. In the year 1193, the English king Richard, who was also known as Richard the Lionheart. Isn't that a great name? I wish it was my name. I wish I was Tim the Lionheart. And you had to say, hey, Pastor Lionheart, that would be awesome. But, but, but back to King Richard, he was captured by Leopold V in Austria. And the Holy Roman Emperor demanded a ransom of 150,000 marks, which was the equivalent of three tons of silver. Three tons, that's an enormous ransom. But the people of England loved their king so much, they submitted to extra taxation. Can you imagine this happening today? No, you can't. Uh, uh, for anybody in Washington, D.C., I, I am not, Anyway, I almost lost the Holy Ghost. Go back to the story. The, the people of England submitted to extra taxation. Certain nobles donated their fortune for his release, and that's where we get the phrase, a king's ransom. But hear me. As followers of Jesus, when we hear the word a king's ransom, it isn't what was paid to free our king, but the price our king paid to free us. Jesus, the rightful king of kings, the son of God, paid the ultimate price for our freedom. And it wasn't three tons of silver. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why it says in 1 Peter 1 verse 18, for you know, it wasn't with perishable things such as silver like three tons of silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, you guys. It was the most expensive ransom in history. And let this in. It was paid for you. The ransom price was himself. The Son of God gave himself to redeem us. You know what that means? That means no sin you've ever committed can take you beyond redemption. Your sin is not greater than Jesus' blood. In fact, his blood not only forgives, but it actually changes your identity. It's so powerful, it it, it takes you to a new category. You go from sinner to son, or from sinner to daughter. Galatians 4, verse 4, listen to this. But when the time had fully come, When the kairos moment, when the the divinely appointed time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem, there's the word redemption again, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. What does that mean? It means that, that we get brought into the family, we get a new identity, and we have a new authority. Let me illustrate this way. You've all heard of David Livingston, famous mich- missionary in Africa, and explorer. Uh, there's a story told about David Livingston that at one occasion, uh, he was in an area in Africa. And in certain areas of Africa, uh, especially in that time, there, w- there was a, um, a culture where when you come to an area as a visitor, you exchange gifts with the king or, or the tribal chief. And so he would do that, and, and on one occasion, he meets this king of this area, and he lays down kind of a blanket, and he puts all these possible gifts that the guy might want. You know, he's got a knife and different things that he might want, the king might want. And the king walks up, and he's got a stick. And David Livingston's like, I don't really want a stick. There's like a lot of sticks around here. I got enough. I don't I don't really want a stick, you know, but whatever, you know, he's trying to. So he says, well, you just pick whatever you want. And the king looks at everything that's on the on the, you you know, that's laid down right in front of him. And he looks past it and he says, actually, I want that goat back there. And David Livingston had his favorite goat because he had stomach problems when he traveled. And I guess goat milk is good for stomach problems. And so it was his favorite goat. Like, and he wanted he was like, well, that's not on the sheet up here. That's not one of the options. And I want you to take my favorite goat for a stick. And one of his assistants said, uh, Dr. Livingston, can I speak with you for a moment? And he pulls him over to the side and he says, um, Dr. Livingston, um, that's not just a stick. That's the king's scepter. And whoever holds the king's scepter is in the king's family and speaks with the king's authority. And nobody can stop him. If you have the king's scepter, you can go anywhere in this area, do almost anything at almost any time, and no one can stop you. And Dr. Livingston said... I think that might be a good trade. Listen, on the cross, Jesus made a trade. He made a trade. He traded his blood for your sin. He took the goat of our sin that we were putting our trust in, right? And he gave us the king's scepter. And what does that do? That makes us sons. It makes us daughters of the most high God. So Satan has no authority over us. Sin doesn't have the right to control us. Death is not allowed to frighten us anymore. Why? Because we got the king's scepter. We're part of the family. We've been redeemed with a king's ransom. And then the third thing is that it's the revelation of God. See, see, it's, it's not just that it's the triumph over evil or the redemption of sinner. It reveals who God is. The cross shows us who God is and what he's like. 1 John 3, 16 says it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now, most people would say they know what love is, right? I mean, mean, even Forrest Gump. I'm not a smart man, but I know what love is. Remember that? We know what love is. Uh, We have some idea, at least, don't we? I mean, love for a parent, love for a child, a spouse, a friend. We've all experienced some degree or quality of love. But here's what John is saying. Apart from the cross of Christ, the world would never have known what true love is. In fact, John is saying there has only been one act of pure love unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive that has ever been performed in the history of the world, namely the self-giving of God in Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. And that is why if you want a definition of love, don't look it up in the dictionary. Go to Calvary. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Here it is. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 5 verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And and notice there, it says God demonstrates. It's not he demonstrated 2,000 years ago. It's that the cross is an ongoing, current, present tense demonstration of how God feels about you. Do you want to know what God is like? at the cross. And I know that a lot of people here have been through horrible, painful things. And, and you know, the pain of searing loss and grief and sorrow. And if, it, it, and, and if you only looked at the evidence that you see right now, you might say, is God good? But there's another piece of evidence. You got to take it into consideration. Let's call it exhibit A. And I'd like for you to admit the evidence for the jury's inspection. This piece of evidence answers every question you might have. It's the cross. So if you're wondering this morning, is God good? Does God love me? I invite you to look at the cross because the cross reveals what kind of God we have. We don't have a God who sits in untouched bliss, sort of apathetic to humanity, like he's on some celestial deck chair going, wow, that looks like that hurts down there. No, we have a God who takes, he enters our world. He takes the suffering upon himself. He dies for us. That's what God is like. So the cross, just to summarize real quick, the cross becomes the lens through which we see what God is like. We see who we are and we see the world. And, and, and if you've been around New Life for a while, that's all review for you. You've already heard a lot of that. You've maybe even seen that chart before. But I want to introduce you to something else in addition to that that maybe you haven't thought about. Because the cross is not only the lens through which we see God, the lens we, through which we see ourselves and we see the world. But it, the cross is the lens through which we see everyone else. Because of the cross, you can never ever see anybody ever the same ever again. I mean, I want you to let this in. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to take the cross seriously, it changes everything. It even change. You can't even see people. You can any people. You can't see people ever the same ever again. Now, what I'm about to tell you is pretty crazy radical, okay? And some of you never thought about it. I mean, you, you've thought about the cross, you've been going to church for a long time, but you've never thought about it this way. I, I assure you, what I'm about to tell you is orthodox, okay? This is biblical doctrine, okay? But so few people try to live this out because it's so radical and because it literally will change everything. So if you have your Bibles, real quick, and this is be the last text we're going to look at, is 2 Corinthians 5. You might just want to flip it over into this, 2 Corinthians 5. And I'll begin reading in verse 14. I want you to see this. And in the last few weeks, I've been seeing this in a new way. It's blown my mind. I invite you into that. Verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. One translation is constraints. Now, compels kind of has the feeling of pushing you out, right? Constraints kind of has the feeling of pulling you back. But if you were to look it up in an interlinear, uh, the gloss on it is controls. So here's what, here's what Paul's saying. Christ's love controls us. In other words, our behavior is shaped by his love. How we live is is shaped by his love because, he goes on, we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. So here's what Paul's saying. On the cross, Jesus not only died for you, he died as you. Did you get that? There is an element of substitution. He stepped into your place and he died as you so that you already died. You're already dead. One died for all, therefore, this already happened. It's already true whether you know this or not or you believe it or not. He already did it. You're already died. Verse 15. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Notice the first result of this substitution is we no longer live for ourselves. So, I don't know if you know this or not, but your life is actually not about you. I knew I was going to get less amens on that one. That's okay. That's okay. So, listen, when things happen in my life, a lot of times I will get bent out of shape. But if I'll stop and think, wait a second, this ain't even about me. Because our lives are no but no, for now, one died for all. Therefore, all died so that we live for him. And watch this. Here is the second and perhaps even more radical result of the cross that maybe you've never even thought of. Think of it today, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. That's the NIV, the the King James and the ESV, probably a better translation says, according to the flesh. So from now on, we don't know anybody according to the flesh or from the worldly point of view. What does that mean? It means that we no longer evaluate each other by appearances, we don't judge each other by the law. We, we don't determine the significance or value or worth of other people by an outward appraisal. We don't allow the worldly point of view to control how we see people. See, the world has a narrative that it wants to impose on you. And that narrative says certain people are your enemies. But if we believe the cross, we actually see everybody through the lens of the cross because his love controls us. The cross changes how we see people. John Wesley put it this way. He said when a beggar came to him, he didn't actually see a beggar. Here's what he said. He said, I see through all the rags that he is purpled over with the blood of Christ. See, every single person I meet, I see them as one for whom Christ died. One died for all, therefore all died. They are purple over in the blood of Christ. So I don't assess their value from the world's point of view according to the flesh. They're not my enemy. The world might tell you they're my enemy. They're not my enemy. But why? Jesus already made it so. The cross already changed it. We know no one from a worldly point of view. Let me illustrate that for you. This guy lives down the road in our neighborhood. He's part of the LGBTQ community. When I see him, according to this verse, the first category I see is not LGBTQ. You know who I see? I see someone for whom Christ died. I see somebody who's purpled over in the blood of Christ. And the word might say, he's my enemy. No, 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 the cross already happened. I see him through the cross. I see what Jesus has already done. You you know Muslims are not our enemy. Some of y'all didn't know that. That, The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world. So, so, So our enemy is not. When I see a Muslim, I actually don't even see a Muslim. I see somebody for whom Christ died. I see somebody purpled over in the blood of Christ. They don't even know it yet. But the cross already changes how I see them. When I was a kid, you know, the narrative growing up when I was a kid was us versus them. Anybody my age or older, you know, the narrative was the Soviet Union versus the United States. It was USSR versus the USA. And when I was a kid, we came out with movies like Red Dawn. Scared me. I thought the Soviets were coming tomorrow, next Tuesday. I, that was the story. And the narrative was the Russians, the Soviets are my enemy. Guess what? The Soviets, the Russians, the Russians are not my enemy. Who are they? They're they people for whom Christ died. They're purpled over in the blood of Christ already. You know what? I'm just who this. Democrats and Republicans are not your enemy. It doesn't matter which side of that aisle you sit on. The other side is not your, you know who they are? They're people for whom Christ died. They're purpled over in the blood of Christ. You know, there's a lot of xenophobia going on in our country right now. You know, xenophobia, is it's fear of strangers, fear of foreigners. If you're a Christian, if you're controlled by the cross, you don't have the luxury of being xenophobic. Fearing the foreigner or or, or the stranger. You know, no, no. Why? Because every time you see a stranger, you're seeing somebody for whom Christ died. They're purpled over in the blood of Christ. It changes everything. If you take the cross seriously, you don't assess people's value on anything else other than one died for all and therefore all died. The cross means they have infinite value because Jesus paid an infinite price. They might not even know it yet. But watch this. I go ahead and treat them now in the reality that Jesus already created, whether they know it or not. That means even people who hurt us, Christ died for them. Now, this is is hard. This is hard. When somebody hurts you or does something, to see them through the lens of the cross and say that Jesus died for them, they're purpled over in the blood of Christ. Even that. So we don't, we don't hate that. Hate, hate is not an option for a Christ follower. We, it's hard. I know it's easy for me to stand up here and say that. Easy. But Jesus loves them. He died for them. They're purpled over in the blood of Christ. See, we don't see anybody ever again according to the flesh. From a worldly perspective. And here's an even bigger implication. If you'll let this in, if we don't see anyone according to the flesh, that includes ourselves. This may be the most difficult thing I going to talk about. If you take the cross seriously, you can never, ever see yourself the same ever again. Because you don't know yourself after the flesh. The cross already changed that. What does that mean? Christ's love on the cross controls how I see myself. His love controls how I see you, how I see everybody else, my enemy, all of that. But it also controls how I see myself. And, and somebody needs to hear this today. Somebody, myself, but somebody else here needs to hear this today because I know there's some of you who loathe yourself. And you carry self-hatred and low self-worth and you're just angry perpetually at yourself. I want you to hear this. Jesus' love for you on the cross should shape how you see yourself. Now let me give you very quickly two applications, one illustration, and then I'll be done. Unless I think of something else. Two applications. Application number one. I am not what people have done to me. Now, I know some of you have, have had devastating things done to you, and and, and and what often happens is someone does something to us, and we get wounded. And if we're not careful, we allow that wound to become our identity. This is easy. I mean, this is there's no condemnation in this, what I'm saying. It, I'm just telling you this is how it happens. We begin to define ourselves by our wound, and the wound becomes the lens through which we see ourselves. This especially happens to young people who have been hurt, by adults, because they just assume, you know, if an adult hurt me, then I must have deserved it. So they, they take that as an identity. It's like, I must be evil. I must be inherently unlovable. I must be inherently unworthy or not valuable. And it becomes their identity. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. That is not who you are. You are not what has been done to you. Jesus loves you. Jesus says you're of incalculable worth. Why? Because Jesus paid an infinite price for you. Allow yourself to be known by Jesus' love on the cross. We regard no one, including ourselves, according to the flesh. I am not what people have done to me. And number two, and this may be the hardest thing for you to let in. I am not what I have done. This is a big one. See, I'm tempted to remember all my failures, all the bad choices, sins, mistakes for my whole life, especially at nighttime. It's easy to remember all the ways I messed up. And if I'm not careful, I can define myself by my failures. I can find my identity in my failures. And then you know what I try to do? I try to atone for my sin by feeling shame. You you know what? I'm just going to preach to myself for a minute. Y'all listen in, okay? Because you may not understand what I'm saying. Actually, I think a lot of you actually know exactly what I'm saying. But if I'm not careful... I can try to carry it as, if I'm, as if I'm going to pay for my sin by beating myself up and carrying shame and it becomes my identity. But you know what Paul says here? He says, we don't know ourselves by our past. Our past is not our identity. We no longer regard anyone, including ourselves, according to the flesh. We see ourselves. We find our identity in the fact that Jesus died on the cross for us. We see ourselves through the lens of the cross. And that is why Paul says in the very next verse, he says, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, including me, including you, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Hallelujah. And that means, and that means, listen, if you take the cross seriously, You must forgive yourself. You receive Jesus love, you receive his forgiveness, you let let this in. You can't atone for your sin. You can never feel guilty enough. You can never carry enough shame for long enough to atone For your sin. Carrying shame will not atone for your sin. Let the cross change how you see yourself. You are not your sin. You are a new creation in Christ. Let me just illustrate that and then I'll be done. I normally, you know, don't read stories to you. I try to tell stories. This is so beautifully written. I want to read it to you. Because it illustrates... This whole idea of forgiving ourselves because of the cross. It's a story by Rebecca Pippard in her book, Hope Has Its Reason. She was speaking at a conference, and at this conference, a woman came up to her tears running down her face, and she was devastated. She asked if she could speak with her, and they slipped into a back room, and she bawled as she told her story. And this is what she said. Years before, she and her fiancé, to whom she was now married, had been the youth workers at a large conservative church. They were a well-known couple and had an extraordinary impact on the young people. Everyone looked up to them and admired them tremendously. A few months before they were to be married, they began having sexual relations. That left them burdened enough with a sense of guilt and hypocrisy. But then she discovered she was pregnant. You can't imagine what the implications would have been of admitting this to our church, she said. To confess that we were preaching one thing and living another would have been intolerable. The congregation was so conservative and had never been touched by any scandal. We felt they couldn't handle knowing about our situation, nor could we bear the humiliation. So we made the most excruciating decision I have ever made. I had an abortion. My wedding day was the worst day of my life. Everyone in the church was smiling at me, thinking me a bride, beaming in innocence. But do you know what was going through my head as I walked down the aisle? All I could think to myself was, you're a murderer. You were so proud. You couldn't bear the shame and humiliation of being exposed for what you are. But I know who you are. I know what you are. And so does God. You have murdered an innocent baby. She was sobbing so deeply that she could not speak. As I put my arms around her, a thought came to me very strongly, but I was afraid to say it. I knew that if it was not from God, it could be destructive. So I prayed silently for the wisdom to help her. She continued, I, I just can't believe that I could do something so horrible. How could I have murdered an innocent life? How is it possible I could do such a thing? I love my husband. We have four beautiful children. I know the Bible says that God forgives all of our sins, but I can't forgive myself. I've confessed the sin a thousand times and I still feel such shame. The thought that haunts me most is how could I murder an innocent wife? I took a deep breath and said what I've been thinking. I don't know why you're so surprised. This isn't the first time your sins led to death. It's the second. She looked at me in utter amazement. My dear friend, I continued, when you look at the cross, all of us show up as crucifiers. Religious or non-religious, good or bad, abortors or non-abortors, all of us are responsible for the death of the only innocent man who ever lived. Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Do you think there are any of your sins that Jesus didn't have to die for? The very sin of pride that caused you to destroy your child is what killed Christ as well. It doesn't matter that you weren't there 2,000 years ago. We all sent him there. Luther said, we carry his very nails in our pockets. So if you've done it before, why couldn't you do it again? She stopped crying. She looked me straight in the eyes and said, you're right. I've done something even worse than killing my baby. My sin is what drove Jesus to the cross. It doesn't matter that I wasn't there pounding in the nails. I'm still responsible for his death. Do you realize the significance of what you're telling me, Becky? I came to you saying I had done the worst thing imaginable, and you tell me I've done something even worse than that. I grimaced because I knew that was true. I'm not sure my approach would qualify as one of the great counseling techniques. But then she said, Becky, if the cross shows me that I am far worse than I ever imagined, It also shows me that my evil has been absorbed and forgiven. If the worst thing any human can do is kill God's son and that can be forgiven, then how can anything else, even my abortion, not be forgiven? I will never forget the look in her eyes as she sat back in awe and quietly said, Talk about amazing grace. This time she wept, not out of sorrow, but from relief and gratitude. I saw a woman literally transformed by a proper understanding of the cross. I think there's some people here today who need to be transformed. By a proper understanding of the cross. Paul concludes this whole section, one last verse. With a one sentence summary of the gospel. Here's what he says God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. No longer knowing ourselves by our sin, but by the cross. Because the cross changes everything